10th of November from 2 to 5pm. CICD is a proud affiliate member of Community Radio Federation. Six years I've been Green Left Weekly Radio There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests and that's Green Left Weekly It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights environmental sustainability, democracy and equality It presents ideas mainstream media won't It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movements. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Good morning, everyone. You are listening to Green Left Radio, 8.55 on your AM dial. It's Friday, uh, last day of work for many people. So, um, yeah, we hope you have a good weekend. Uh, stick around. We've got a packed show um, and uh, a, a one interview and a pre-record of an Naomi Klein talk, which is going to be interesting. Uh, probably the first thing I need to do, the, here in the studio, you have uh, myself, Megan, and Jacob. Hello, Jacob. Yeah, so, good morning, everyone. Um, yeah, we have a pretty packed um, program today, um, and you know it's being marked by quite a lot of political developments that have been happening, I guess, oh in the past week. Um, the first thing I still want to say is acknowledge um, that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the Wandry Land of the Kulin Nation. Um, I'd like to pay our respect um, to elders, past, present, and emerging. Um, that this always was, um, always will be Aboriginal land, and that sovereignty has never been ceded. And of course, this program um, supports all the demands of um, the Indigenous movement fighting for land rights and sovereignty. <laughs> mm, absolutely. Uh, okay, so um, there is um, a bunch of different issues, as there usually are here in Australia and around the world. Um, one of the uh, articles I wanted to uh, start on is an article in Green Left Weekly uh, called, entitled The Quiet Australians That Morrison Fears. It's by Pip Hinman. And um, Pip says it's worthwhile listening to Prime Minister Scott Morrison's speech to the Queensland Resources Council on November 1st, where he rails against progressivism and emergence of a new breed of radical activism because it's a reminder of the parallel reality that he inhabits. Um, in it, Morrison hypocritically describes the climate movement as apocalyptic and brooking no compromise um, and opposed to allowing for alternate views. Yet he's the one refusing to compromise on climate action, despite more than 300,000 people uh, marching here in Australia on the streets as part of the September 20 climate strike um, and also as part of other um, climate actions, including uh, blockade IMARC. Um, Scott is uh, uh, Scott Morrison's the one that's determined to ignore alternative points of view, starting with the scientists that make up the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, which, by the way, is notoriously conservative in their estimates. Um, it was their 2018 warning about having understated the risks from high concentrations of greenhouse gases that propelled the highly motivated and knowledgeable high school students uh, into action through the school strike for climate and Greta Thunberg. 
Morrison may have used the protest as in, at the International Mining and Resource Conference, IMARC, in Melbourne at the end of October to launch his counteroffensive, but it's the millennial rebels and the impact they have, uh, they're having on the quiet Australians that has prompted Morrison to act. Now, the, the PM and Attorney General have responded in the only way that they know how, bringing in new laws with the hope that they will silence, intimidate or bankrupt activists through ridiculously high fines and threats of jail. And remember, we live in a democracy as well, so this is just absolutely ridiculous. But the coalition may have bitten off more than they can chew. Amending the secondary boycott provisions uh, in, t- in Section 45DD of the Competition and Consumer Act, which currently protects consumer boycotts in relation to environmental protection or consumer protection, is something that a wide range of people are likely to oppose. Uh, yet Morrison is determined to push ahead in, on behalf of coal and gas corporations and their right to make a profit at any cost. Um, so, yeah, Pip goes on with some other information. But, I mean, really, uh, the, this kind of action really shows that uh, Scott Morrison really feels like, and the, and the LNP really need to crack down on these kinds of things because they're afraid that the majority of Australians might be coming on board with this. And um, what Pip doesn't mention in her article is that uh, there's now a list of 11,000 uh, scientists that have come together and said, look, we, what we face is absolutely apocalyptic. We need to do something about this. This is no joke. Um, so, yeah, it, we, I do believe that Scott Morrison lives in this alternate reality. How can he even think that the actual action that he needs to undertake with regards to climate change and activists is to stop their voice rather than stopping climate crisis? Well, there, there's, um, there's quite a lot, I think, to unpack there. I mean, especially the use of the language quiet Australian, which I just find a bit baffling. I mean, because actually yeah. the, the term got, kind of got first started by... Um, this woman who wrote a concert, um, wrote this article um, in a conservative paper following the kind of election, um, basically trying to attack any kind of um, left-wing kind of opinion, saying that, oh, you know, I am a quiet Australian, you know, I'm not vocal like those, you know, silly leftists. I just shut up and behave. I just, well, <laughs> the, no, it went even kind of worse than I'll just shut up and behave. It went into kind of the direction, I'm a quiet Australian because I don't take handouts. I just work hard and do my job. It's, it's, I think, kind of in, mm. interesting and kind of like the insidious aspect of um, Australian nationalism that, mm. you know, the kind of, uh, the kind of language of kind of um, national identity, um, you know, the fair go, all that kind of language is kind of mm. co-opted or, you know, utilised in a way um, to basically silence any kind of dissent to the status quo yeah. um, because, you know, in the, the fallacy of living in a so-called liberal democracy is that apparently, you know, we have democratic rights unlike, say, North Korea or China. I mean, North Korea is, um, I mean, yeah. So we, we have, we apparently have all these liberal um, freedoms. That's all seems all well and great that we have a right to, you know, protest or a right to speak out. Um, but as soon as it seems that we, as soon as our mm. speaking out appears to have any kind of political impact on 
then the status quo, um, which is in this, um, the capitalist class, tends to be quite upset and will use all sorts of language, um, implement all sorts of repressive laws, and then also, you know, utilise um, the police as the kind of armed guard of that. And that was very evident in what we saw last week with the blockade. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, and, you know, the, we, we live in a democracy and we have the right to protest and we have the right to speak out, but how dare you um, speak out and protest uh, in this democratic society, because obviously then you must be a jobless loser, lefty. Uh, it's it's quite um, that quite that term quite Australian reminds me of its sort of uh, progenitor, uh, the the silent majority. Have you heard that term? Yeah, yeah, I have heard that yeah, term. Yeah, and that's used of you know obviously there's a small amount of protesters, but the silent majority disagree with them. So yeah. <laughs> mm. Well, I think it also extends to another. I think another thing we should. Um, be confident about, I think, is ultimately when it comes to um, the rise of climate campaign, I think is reflecting a sentiment that is growing every day. I think people are concerned about climate change. Um, they're probably people might might have confused politics on the issue. Some might still vote liberal, whatever. But I think, you know, the public is the so-called public, I think, is always far more left and progressive leaning than what the likes of the, the ruling class um, like to argue. And in fact, the ruling class, I think, wants to ferment the kind of, um, 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 wants to ferment racism and sexism and opposition to climate change in the public. But, um, but of course, you know, it actually goes, going back all the way to the May election, um, there was this whole argument put forward, well, people voted for Adani, you know, yeah, well, yeah, I sure, mean, did people, people really? did vote for Adani in Queensland, but for somehow you are coincidentally trying to repress any form of protest for people to democratically make the case that actually probably maybe voting for Adani was a mistake, but the protests by, um, but the fact that they're trying to, um, you know, dissent, um, you know, criminalise any kind of dissent, especially in the protests, and Queensland has been f- by far the one that's been hit with the harshest laws. Yeah. You know, I think you're right. I, I do think that um, the general majority of people here in Australia um, at least do tend to lean towards the left, especially um, when it comes to the topic of climate change. Uh, but I think what a lot of people are trying to struggle against, and of course they're also struggling against um, Morrison's railing against climate activists and, and climate, the climate science itself, um, they're struggling against a fatality, a, f- a fatalistic attitude um, that uh, can creep in because it, it is what it's getting critical now. The scientists are getting critical. The scientists are the ones now sounding the alarm when normally they would use conservative language. So this, um, we are we are trying to struggle against a fatalism. Um, the majority of people are trying to struggle against that and. and um, trying to actually convince themselves that action is still warranted in the face of a climate crisis that we may not be able to stop. Uh, so we're fighting against the likes of Scott Morrison and his government. We're fighting against the actual um, you know, the physics and the reality of the climate crisis. And it's quite hard for the average person because we don't feel like we have a lot of power. Now, um, I've got, I might play a quick few announcements um, and they might move just to... I might read out sort of one article um, just I wrote for this week's um, Green Left Weekly, which is actually a film review, um, and then we'll move on to our first interview, which is going to be with Julia Shields, um, who is uh, who is involved with the Melbourne Activist Legal Support Network, MALS, yep. um, and she'll be talking with us about, you know, 
the whole issue of police powers and their use during the blockade, but maybe talking more broadly, um, especially since um, if people watched the Channel 7 report, there was, a very, some very, there, was a, there was some very disturbing footage on Channel 7 of police basically participating mm. in training in Glen Waverley, actually where I'm one of the suburbs I'm originally from, um, in a police academy and basically training their public order unit, which essentially what it looked like was them training themselves to deal with crowds, i.e. protesters. Um, mm. So I think there's um, quite a lot of, um, that's, I think, quite a disturbing trend. definitely training. a PR piece um, on the news. Well, it didn't, it didn't make them look good to me. <laughs> but <yeah, that's, laughs> Maybe it did to some people. <laughs> <laughs> right, I'll play just a quick few announcements and then might... Um, we'll get start. We'll get into that first interview shortly. Help Freesia support the rights of Indigenous Australians. They mean to save our culture and save our dreams, our footprints, dreams, our songline, and keep our culture going strong. Of course, a lot of the Aboriginals, having been stolen, were put into state care, and also others. The recognition were. of what our people have been through in the last 200 years, the recognition of our culture in the last 40,000 years, and the recognition of where we are heading into the future. Welcome to uh, Survival Day, Invasion Day. 223 years ago, the white man landed on our shores. Subscribe to 3CR and help keep Indigenous voices on air. Call us on 94198377 or visit 3cr.org.au. Subscribe now. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Join me, Aya Kwai, with Ubuntu Voices, Wednesday at 8.30 p.m. on 3CR. Ubuntu is a Zulu word, meaning I am here because you are. Ubuntu celebrates the positive contribution African Australians make to our communities in music, academia, the arts, and everything in between. Come with me on a journey. Ubuntu Voices every Wednesday at 8.30 p.m. None of us are free. One of us is chained. None of us are free. Six years I've been Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here because uh, Aboriginal radio and um, you don't really get to do this much. Brings us all together. Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just want to say thank you to all of you for giving us the opportunity to speak on air. The bigger the reason, the bigger the calling. 
make your commitment and watch things like And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. But also while I'm here, I'd like to say thank you for all for coming. Um, helping, giving us a chance to do this. It's really good, you know. It's been going for a while now. Hopefully it goes, it keeps going. You know, like, it's, it's good that we can do this and um, get our voice out there as prisoners. We can't blame everything on the external, so let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor because real power comes from here and it comes from family. If you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03 9419 You're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio, and um, in the studio we have myself and Megan. Um, we have Julia Dem on the on the line now, who is involved with the Melbourne Activist Legal Support, um, MELS, um, and we have her on the line today to talk about some of the legal um, some of the legal ramifications and some of the issues with policing um, at. Um, at last week's um, blockade of the International Mining and Resources Conference. Good morning, Julia. Good morning. Hi. Um, so, Julia, I guess to start off, um, can you give us, I guess, maybe in a broad summary, kind of like the kind of male's kind of response um, to the policing that happened last week, and then maybe we could go into kind of more specifics later on? Sure, sorry. <coughs> So MELS stands for Melbourne Activist Legal Support Team, and so we fielded trained legal observers at all days of the IMARC protests. Um, And the role of um, these legal observers is to monitor police behaviour and to um, ensure that all policing either complies, that is lawful and complies with, (coughs) I'm sorry, requirements on the use of force. (coughs) Sorry. We do have... You know, our rights to protest in Victoria are enshrined in the Victorian Charter of Human Rights and Responsibilities, and so we see the role of trained legal observers as important to actually realising those rights in Victoria and enabling people to protest around issues that are of critical importance. And so the male legal observers who were there at the IMARC protest were shocked by the excessive use of force that we saw from police in a number of different ways. Mm. And so we saw multiple instances of police shoving and pulling protesters at times of such force that they were fell to the ground. At times, police would um, push people, including down concrete stairs. There's one account where a protester was thrown into a cement wall and hit the back of his head. There are other instances where you saw police come, um, members of the public order response team come in sort of small groups of snap squads targeting individual activists, grabbing them, tackling them to the ground, and using excessive force um, to detain and to hold those individuals. One of the things that we're particularly concerned about is the use of mounted horses for crowd control. On a Tuesday morning, um, one woman was critically injured and had to um, be hospitalised. Um, <coughs> I'm sorry. No, that's okay. broken arm and leg. Yep. Um, and it's clear that horses can cause such injury, particularly when they're used um, in this sort of crowd control situation, which is why males have a very clear position that horses should not be used 
mm. at protests. We're calling for a ban on any uses at um, protests for the sort of crowd control. Some of the other things that we were particularly concerned about was the use of police batons, um, which is clearly an excessive use of force, particularly because the video footage that's circulating online shows <coughs> this sort of force being used um, against people who were um, not <coughs> not posing any threat to officers. And I actually had, in one instance, one had her hands in the air and was still being um, struck by a police baton. And then the other thing that we're particularly concerned about is the use of um, cap scan or OC foam and spray, which was used multiple times by police um, on the Tuesday and then again much more extensively on the Wednesday. Amels has done a detailed analysis of this use of OC spray. There's a video um, on our social media where we break down one of these incidents in a lot of detail. The police's own guidelines state that OC spray should only be used in situations where there's a um, violence or an immediate threat of violence and that it should not be used where there's someone is being non-compliant. It specifically states that in their guidelines. And in this incident, um, OC spray was deployed against a crowd who was being non-compliant but was not posing any immediate threat um, or any threat of violence. Um, and then a second round of OC spray was deployed when the crowd had already moved away and was already clearly affected by the OC spray and further OC spray was deployed against people who were already on the ground and visibly affected by the effect <coughs> of this OC spray. <coughs> and so, <coughs> sorry, um, our analysis suggests that the use of OC spray in this situation was both against Victoria Police's own directions and um, in breach um, and potentially unlawful. Mm. Um, so thank you. It, look, it, thank you so much for the work that you do. I just want to first, um, firstly state that MALS does such a great job of being uh, legal observers and analysing and monitoring um, police actions at these kinds of activities. Um, so you know, you mentioned that uh, with regards to the OC spray, and uh, it was all about uh, not. It was. It should all be about violence and not non-compliance, etc. I mean, the police That's were correct. being quite heavy-handed. Um, can you maybe give us? Um, some because uh, we I know uh, for certain that there was at least two journalists who were manhandled um, who were not actually part of the um, the protest uh, but and, and were apparently following police orders but were um, either manhandled or pepper sprayed. Can you comment on that? So um, I didn't personally witness that. I wasn't there for all the days of the eye mark, but from the footage that I saw online, you could see. Um, one of the journalists being told by police to move and was trying to move and kept saying, I'm a journalist, I'm a journalist, I'm a journalist. And in the process was constantly being grabbed and pushed um, by police officers. Like, we clearly saw an escalation of the type of tactics that police were used to. <coughs> Sorry. Um, at IMARC, and it was a very different model of policing to what um, Noah's legal observers observed, you know, a week earlier um, through the Extinction Rebellion protest. And I think um, the police just were operating in a way that was incredibly indiscriminate in terms of who was being targeted um, and the impacts of that, even though we did get um, reports from some of the um, organisers of the protest that they thought they were being 
specifically targeted by police. So we saw this sort of um, sense that police were um, potentially targeting um, key individuals who were involved in, um, you know, marshalling and coordinating protests. But then at the other hand, you know, a lack of sort of any um, discrimination in terms of who sort of became affected by the policing, um, that even people who weren't involved in any way, such as journalists, um, who were just trying to monitor what was going on, there's also reports of a student um, reporter from the Melbourne Uni Farrago um, paper who was affected by the um, OC spray that was deployed um, was sort of being caught up in the... Um, being caught up um, and also suffering excessive force by the police. Mm. And... Um so just with regards to the difference, you mentioned the difference between, um, say, the police actions um, in, with regards to the IMARC blockade protesters and then the police actions uh, just a, a week or so ago with the Extinction Rebellion um, actions. Can you give us a little bit of an analysis on that? Look, uh, it's something that I'm still trying to um, understand better myself and clearly we don't have information about, you know, what the police directions, um, instructions were, what their briefings were, etc. how police command was approaching these events. But I suspect the difference was that at IMARC there was a concerted effort by activists to block the entrances of the convention centre um, and then this sort of move from a type of protest that was actually trying to disrupt um, the meeting of the mining executives that was happening um, in the convention centre um, as opposed to protests that were making a more symbolic um, message, um, disrupting um, traffic in the city, but not necessarily preventing um, a clear event, sort of is probably key to why we saw quite a different approach um, by police. And, and I suspect also the international nature of the meeting um, probably might have changed... Um, some of the police considerations around what their tactics and approach would be. But again, I'm not privy to, um, you know, police briefing documents or any of their internal deliberations on this. Thank you. And have you seen um, the footage of uh, police uh, training um, in the aftermath of the IMARC blockade? Um, and what, what is Mel's uh, response to that? Sorry, I haven't seen that footage. Can you explain? I'll describe the footage. Um, so basically, yeah. it appeared on Channel 7, I think, and basically it was um, footage of a police academy um, training their public order response um, team. And basically, the public order response team has, he was showing people in kind of riot gear, basically looking like um, they were training on how to deal with protesters um, and in crowd control, etc. In fact, it looked very similar to... Um, the kind of imagery looked very similar to what they did during the counter-protests against Milo Yiannopoulos, where they had groups of riot cops basically marching in to a public housing estate in the aftermath of, um, in the aftermath of that counter-rally. Yeah, so I guess... The Mel's position is like just a broader concern with the growth and the, um, the resourcing of these sorts of public order response teams. Like there's a, you know, old saying that if everything you've got is a hammer, everything starts to look a lot like a nail. And if these are sort of the, you know, the tools that the police are investing so much training into and these sort of the tactics, then they get deployed more and more often in situations where it's entirely inappropriate to be calling on 
um, port, and I think in port, like there's a particular culture that is developing through training, through, mm. um, you know, just sort of those cultural factors then within the police as well, all of which is really concerning. Um, you know, we saw a number of police officers had um, taken off their or weren't wearing their name badges. Um, there's also was a lot of um, controversy in the media afterwards about um, police officer making the OK um, signal that was interpreted by many as sort of a white supremacist signal, um, another officer having um, a sort of sexist comment um, on his um, in front of his camera. And so, again, these sort of things, whilst the, like, action needs to be taken against these individuals for that behaviour, it also reflects a much broader problem, um, a culture. Mm. Um, and we've sort of seen a lot of work in police accountability in Victoria about sort of trying to um, expose and to hold police accountable for a culture of racism and prejudice um, within the police as well. So it's these sort of broader factors that, you know, if we're investing all these resources and we're going to expect to see um, police deployed in this way more and more um, and also increasingly a culture um, where I think police will feel empowered to behave in these ways, to use these sorts of tactics, which, again, I think is why the work of organisations like MELD and other um, groups, particularly Flemington and Kensington Community Legal Centre, that are doing so much work around police accountability is so important. We do need to have independent mechanisms that can investigate the police properly and to hold them account um, when they do um, breach their own guidelines, when they use force inappropriately, when they behave in ways that are harmful to people. Yep. Most definitely. Okay, yeah. anyway, we're going to wrap up this interview. I guess, do you have any kind of final comments, I guess, in terms of maybe re- recapping, I guess, what are sort of Mao's kind of demands, um, especially in response um, to this kind of um, case of kind of clear br- police brutality in the past week on, in, um, during the IMARC protests? Yeah, sure. So Mel's put out a preliminary statement of concern, which is available on our website, melbourneactivistlegalsupport.org. Um, after the first day of IMARC, we're working on a more detailed statement of concern documenting the whole event. So I wanted to direct people to um, those resources. We're also, um, you know, circulating information about what steps people can take um, to make complaints if they did experience excessive use of police force or forms of police brutality. And I guess in general, some of the main things that we're really calling for is an end to Victoria Police's use of horses at protests, and particularly the form of crowd control, a strict ban on the use of OC spray as a crowd dispersal method, and an independent review of the occupational, I mean, um, of the ORU um, tactics that clearly escalated conflict and generated harm at the IMARC um, protests. Mm. So there's a lot more work that will need to happen in the follow-up um, to ensure that there is sort of some response to and accountability by the police for the, the brutality and the excessive use of force that we witness at these IMARC protests. Um, thank you. And I understand that um, Melbourne Activist Legal Support is a largely volunteer-based and run um, organisation and relies upon um, donations from the community. Um, can you uh, let people know where they can donate or in any way assist um, MELs? 
Yeah, that's correct. So we are relying entirely on um, donations. We are basically all volunteers. Um, so if you go to our website, that's probably the best place, so melbourneactivistlegalsupport.org. We're also on Facebook and on Twitter, activist underscore legal. And we've got an um, ongoing crowd um, fundraiser happening to sort of raise money for some more resources such as cameras, etc., um, to support the work that we are doing. And we also run um, regular trainings for people who do want to become legal observers, so it's just a way that you feel like you might want to contribute, um, come along and we'll you know, ensure that everyone who is a legal observer gets really detailed um, and careful training to enable us to do this work. Fantastic. And thank you for continuing doing the absolutely oh vital my gosh. work. It is so vital. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and I'm so sorry about that coughing fit earlier. It happens to the best of us, don't worry about it, but you're all good now. And thank it's you so bad much. It, it thank you the very worst. much. Thank you so much and keep up the good work. Okay, bye. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> so that was Julie from Mel's. Uh, talking to us about um, the IMARC blockade and the police response to the IMARC blockade, which um, from the, the perspective of uh, Melbourne Activist Legal Support was excessive um, and inappropriate. So, yeah, and a lot of their analysis. And you can head on to their website. We'll pop that up on the um, online um, when we pop up the show. And you can go there. You can donate. Uh, you can, if you want to be trained by MALS uh, to become a legal observer, uh, their work is absolutely fantastic and vital and, and vital to a democratic society. Hmm. All right. So now I might go play one quick announcement and then we might move on to a few news articles from Green Left Weekly. VCR broadcasters present over a hundred radio programs every week, including a diverse range of community language shows. Come to the VCR Community Radio. Please subscribe now. Just come on to the VCR Community Radio. Araja al ishtarak al an. Ningal ungalin samuha vanali VCRi kertu kundi Están escuchando Radio Comunitaria 3CR. Suscríbete ahora. Support the station that gives your community a voice. Subscribe to 3CR. I spent three and a half years living on the street and I know what it's like to have no hope and not to feel part of the society and I think that's where a lot of these people are. But I think we need to help people who are traumatised and help people get back on their feet and give them hope and help them um, feel like they're a part of the society again instead of just moving them on like they're an inconvenience. If it were not for ruminations, how would the views of those of us who have been homeless or are homeless, how would these views ever be aired? How would they ever be expressed? Subscribe to the station that gives airtime to people with a lived experience of homelessness. Support 3CR. You're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio, um, and it's um, 7.35 a.m. 
Um, I'd like to go and start a bit of discussion from um, this article um, from the latest Green Left Weekly, especially in light of the fact that there is going to be a refugee rights rally tomorrow at 2pm at the State Library. And this is an article written by Jonathan Strauss, um, and that is, you know, tight with the title Australian, Australia's Refugee Policy is Rary 1984. And Jonathan starts off by saying that, you know, there are over 300,000 refugees in Australia um, who have been denied permanent settlement since 2013. Um, some of them are stuck on bridging visas and who continue to wait for their cases to be determined. And one of them, and let's not forget, is the young Tamil couple Priya and Nates, who, with their two Australian-born children, were living in the small Queensland town of Billowee. Bilawila. <laughs> Bilawila, yeah, it's just can't see. Um, where they, ha- they have had obtained employment and became valued members of the local community. And of course, they had on all, just in August this month, um, the government had tried to deport them but failed due to protests by activists and supporters. Um, but of course, the main issue is they're still the sole inmates of, um, uh, in the Christmas Island detention camp, which was reopened earlier this year. Many have been denied and when it comes to refugees, many have been denied to work. Despite this, the government decreed they were expected to work and cut the poverty level payments afforded to them under the Status Resolution Support Services Network. They now have to survive on support from refugee services and campaign groups. Many are struggling through homelessness, health problems and self-harm. People are unable to live with such uncertainty. Since 2013, some refugees have been moved offshore and detained on Manus Island in Papua New Guinea and Nauru. These detention camps are expressions of power that are used to fence in refugees, bribe poorer nations, control who comes to Australia and hide the um, depravations from the public eye. And over time, the number of refugees in these camps has climbed. It doesn't have died in attention, while others have been deported. In many cases, some face um, death. There's, of course, there's been some of the lucky ones who have found their way to Norway, Switzerland or Canada. Um, the PNG, and I guess on the con, the Manus Island situation, the PNG government has closed down um, the detention camp and the remaining refugees have been um, relocated to, um, relocated to Port Mo- Moresby. More than 50 refugees are now in a new prison, while all six have agreed, given up all hope and agreed to be deported. Um, on the other hand, the refugees have not been helpless. There are some that are setting up new groups such as Justice for Refugees, um, Iranian Kurdish um, refugee Baruz Bolshani won a literary award for his book about Manus Island. They have found growing support across Australia. Some camp workers have spoken out, while health workers have refused to follow government dictates on how to provide treatment. Eventually, the movement were forced to crack in the major parties bipartisan anti-refugee stance. Um, the Medirac bill passed in February, by which Labor was compelled to support, means doctors have the main say on bringing refugees detained offshore to Australia for medical treatment, and more than 130 people have been transferred to Australia since then. And of course, the coalition government you know, was re-elected in May without mentioning refugee policy, but now it's looking to repel um, the Medirac bill with a vote due in the Senate as early as November 11. It all reads out like something out of George Orwell's seminal work, um, 1984. Fortunately, 1984 is fiction. And I guess we have to go um, 
beyond that, I guess Jonathan kind of summarises that we really need to build a big mass movement to put the pressure on the government to shut down the camps. Um, we need to um, we need to be campaigning to prevent this um, bill from being reversed. And then looking beyond the bill, we have to go and you know we have to actually look at changing the laws completely around how we treat refugees. And of course, they ev- might even include forging links with the climate action movement where the issue of climate refugees is a critical question. So, um, yeah, uh, that's just a bit of a summary. Anyway, um, I have a bit of a pre-recording um, that I found um, from the page We Are The Many, which has um, recordings from... Uh, the recent sort of conference that happened in Chicago, the Socialism Conference, which is um, usually the biggest sort of radical left kind of conference that happens every year in um, the United States. And this is a talk um, by um, Naomi Klein um, on a panel around climate, um, around the Green New Deal. Um, so yeah, we'll play this recording for the next 20, um, for the next 20 minutes before moving on to the activist calendar. And yeah, so hope you enjoy it. Um, 
when they talk about they, they talk about little things like cap and trade, maybe taxing it, maybe asking people to pay more for gas at the uh, at the pump. Um, really, what we need is an entirely different framing. What we need is a holistic, far-reaching green new deal. Um, can we start maybe by talking a little bit about how do we make sure that it's the Green New Deal that we want and need um, in terms of job creation, but jobs with a living wage, in terms of unionized jobs, in terms of responding to climate change in a way that isn't going to cause more people, especially working people, to suffer. <laughs> Okay. Oh, just pick the mics up out of this okay. out of the purse. I'm trying. Okay. All right. Hi everyone. Are we having a conference? I want to thank uh, Del for that wonderful framing and introduction. Um, I love sharing the stage with my dear friend Astra Taylor, who I've learned so much from over the years, um, and we're constantly yammering at each other about this stuff all the time. So. The only difference that was we're doing it in public, which is extra fun, I think. We'll see. Um, and I want to thank all of the organizers and all of the volunteers and the amazing team at Haymarket Books for taking such great care of us. For So seriously, um, there's not nearly enough of that. It's just so wonderful um, to to see the the voracious commitment uh, to ideas, to talking about them face to face, to reading books about them, um, and 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 to understanding that it's really about applying them and changing the world. So this is it's really special uh, to be here. Um, so that's a big question. What you said? How do we make, how do we make sure? Um, and I think you know, there's, there's so many caveats. I always feel like I need to front load on any discussion uh, about the Green New Deal, starting with the problematic nature of invoking the original uh, new, the original New Deal um, as a as a touchstone at all, um, because of who it excluded, because of the hierarchy built in. Uh, the fact that so many black workers were excluded um, from jobs programs, from relief programs, uh, the fact that indigenous communities also encountered discrimination under the original New Deal, uh, domestic workers, women uh, were largely excluded. Um, so this is, and then the big picture that the original New Deal emerge as a way to solve a crisis in capitalism, right? The crash of 1929 remains the greatest crisis that capitalism has ever produced. And the original New Deal was a way to rescue capitalism, an attempt to rescue capitalism that didn't fully do it. It was the World War II mobilization, actually, that pulled the U.S. out of, out of recession, um, out of depression. Um, so here we are, confronted with a crisis that is so clearly produced by capitalism, 
by the extractive world view as applied to the natural world and as applied to workers, um, to labor, to communities, the idea that we can take and take endlessly as if there is no limit and then just discard and not think about the impact of this discarding, whether it is the discarding of human life um, or whether it is the, the discarding of the planet itself, right? We were, we were promised uh, under trickle-down economics that these blips, as it was presented to us along the way, um, were just, you know, ugly little stages that capitalism was going through, whether it was the Maculadora factories or the Dickensian factories, right? That these were just sort of growth problems, whether it was slavery, whether it was colonial land theft. That these, we were told that these were just um, the, the, the growing pains of capitalism, and eventually it was going to lift up all the boats and everybody was gonna be included. And in fact, it is the precise opposite. That the, that the crimes of capitalism built in from the beginning never went away and the sacrifice zone has just grown bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger now to engulf the entire planet, the habitability of the planet. So that's where we are. So we <laughs> just saving capitalism, saving the American way of life, as it is sometimes called, is not an option because that is, that is what is producing the crisis. Um, I happen to believe that it is still useful to invoke a time when change happens quickly. Um, not because it is uh, you know, not problematic and we need to constantly qualify, but because in my experience, the biggest barrier that we are up against as we talk about the things that must happen in the face of that ticking climate clock is a very widespread feeling that we are already doomed and that we are doomed because we are incapable of the kind of change that is required. And people believe this because they have been told this again and again and again. And we now have several generations who have no living memory of a collective project, and they have no uh, experience of a state that wasn't in a, the, the context of unmaking those parts of the state that actually did benefit people, right? Um, so, to me, the benefit of invoking the New Deal, as problematic as it is, is that it addresses that sense of helplessness head-on, and it, you know, gently awakens a collective memory of a time when people organized on a massive scale, and the parts of the New Deal that were genuinely progressive were progressive because of massive organizing and collective action. Um, the sit-down strikes in Flint, the, the, the port strikes uh, on the West Coast that shut down the entire uh, West Coast ports, general strikes that shut down entire cities, um, the fact that you had you know, a socialist candidate in California almost winning, all of that put so much pressure on FDR to do more and to, to increase. So um, this is why I think it is useful. <laughs> um, 
And, and the other reason why it's useful is that it is, as you said now, a holistic frame that is about changing the whole economy. Because the way we tend to talk about climate change has been this idea that there can just be a climate policy, like cap and trade or a carbon tax. Um, and that will just solve this for us. Um, and we can just add it to a list of other things that we're doing. The, the benefit, I think, of invoking a New Deal-style mobilization is that we are necessarily then talking about a transformation of the economy. And then we need to battle for what that transformation looks like. Right? That puts us on much more politics. But you'll notice that in, in, in this framing, we added the word global. Um, and we did that deliberately because I think after and I both agreed that the discussions around the Green New Deal in this country, in the UK, although, although getting a little better in the UK because of pushback, um, and is, is still far too nationalist and indeed too imperialist in that it's, there's too much of a, a framing around, well, our manufacturing sector is going to win the race for new technologies or, um, and you know, we'll sell them to the whole world. Um, and it isn't reckoning with the huge issue of ecological debt, which um, you know, is another reason why I wanted to, to have this conversation with Astra, is you know, at the core of the climate crisis is this massive debt that is owed to, from the world's greatest consumers who are overwhelmingly in wealthy countries, but it's not everybody in wealthy countries. It's the top 10% of the wealthiest people on this planet who are responsible for about 50% of the emissions. The top 20% are responsible for more than 70, okay? Um, and yet, the people who are most impacted by climate change, who are already having their lives massively disrupted, who are already being forced to migrate, whether internally within their countries or across borders, are, without exception almost, the people who did the least to produce the crisis. So there is a debt that is owed. And the way that we respond to climate change is a massive opening to talk about redistribution of wealth and reparation. Amazing to be here. I totally love everything Naomi just said and have learned so much from you. It's also so great to be here um, with an, at a conference where everyone calls one another a comrade. Um, and I think, comrade, um, and I think we can see a little bit of a hopeful future just in the sense that there's all these socialists in this weird mall. <laughs> it makes a good future easier to picture, actually, to imagine. So let's build on that. Um, on the, I mean, I think when you just say climate emergency, the word emergence really struck me, right? And that, that we have to use this emergency to, to create another, another world. And, you know, just to underscore, I came across some statistics on strikes, the strikes that happened around the Great Depression. And these are both overwhelming numbers, but actually kind of hopeful. So in the late 20s, there were 500 strikes, and that number went up to 3,500 by 1937, right? And so that's the other kind of fast-paced change that is possible and that we need to see, because that, I think when we talk about a new deal, it feels like it's something given by the government, right? It feels like a top-down 
you know, anti-democratic sort of solution, but it was something that was was only possible, as you said, through um, intense mobilization. So 3,500, 500, 3,500, I think there were 20 work stoppages in 2018. We can totally, totally make that, that um, we can get there. On the debt, on the debt front, um, so Dallas and I co-founded something called the Debt Collective, and the idea is that we live in a, a world where finance is extractive. So we're talking about the fossil fuel industry is extractive, but finance is also extractive. It extracts from people, it extracts our time, and the, when we talk about the financialization of the economy, um, that means that um, more and more money is, is extracted from us by, by the financial sector, and that credit and debt are essential. And so when you have credit and debt, you're stuck into these interest rates, right, that are driving growth. You're borrowing money, and they think there will be more to pay for it later on. So we're stuck in stuck in these um, stuck in this math that defies physics, right? Economic logic and the and the logic of uh, ecology are at odds. And you know, so what we try to do strategically is to say, okay, you have a, you know, you are in debt for your education, you're in debt for healthcare because you're not able to access those services because there isn't universal health care, because there isn't free higher education. And what happens is we're stuck paying these odious debts for things we deserve as human beings and we're defaulting on our true social debts. And, and so one thing we have to figure out, when can we say, like, hell no, we won't pay you. We don't owe you for the right to not be sick or to learn, but we do need to pay reparations. We need to pay our climate debt. And Um, so even if you already have a copy, you should buy more because they're there. <laughs> um, 
Um, Naomi Klein on um, the fight for kind of climate justice and the Green New Deal from the Socialism Conference um, that it was in Chicago from I think uh, for the first weekend. Um, yeah, so now it is 8 a.m. Um, you're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio. It's 8:55 a.m. Um, and it's actually time for the activist calendar. Activist calendar. Yes, that's right. So, um, firstly, we have um, this today coming up today um, at is it 4:30? Is it 4.30 or 5.30? 5.30. Oh, it's 5.30. So 5.30 in the Burke Street Mall, we have a rally regarding climate crisis and our right to protest. Uh, so that's, yeah, that's this uh, today. Uh, definitely important one to get to. Um, this coming Saturday, so tomorrow, November 9th, uh, there's a rally to save Medivac, save refugee lives. Uh, that's 2pm at the State Library on Swanson Street. Um, also on Saturday, the, there's an environmental symposium, Our Shared Home, and that's at 4.30 uh, for a 5pm start at Deakin Edge Federation Square, corner of Swanston Street and Flinders Street in the city. Uh, also on Saturday, Earth Show, a rock cl- and classical journey across the earth, uh, starts at 7.15 for an 8pm start, and that is at Deakin Edge again, Federation Square, corner of Swanston Street and Flinders Street in the city. Uh, coming up on Sunday, November the 10th, there's a forum, Rage Against the Machine, Feminism and Capitalism. Not all of us can afford to lean in because some of us aren't even in the room. How can feminism succeed if we're at the mercy of capitalism? 4.30pm at the Town Hall, the corner of Collins and Swanston Streets in the city. Coming up next week, Tuesday, November the 12th, there's a film screening, uh, Against Our Oath, Documentary, Ethical Conflicts Erupt for Doctors as the Australian Government Overrides Their Clinical Decisions Made for for Refugee Patients. And that's at 6.30pm at the ANMF 535 Elizabeth Street in the city. Uh, There's a public meeting, Aeroplanes, the Environment and the Human Condition. Hans Bayer discusses his new book at 7pm at the New International Bookshop, which is at Trades Hall, 54 Victoria Street in Carlton South. 
Uh, on Wednesday, November the 13th to Sunday, November the 24th, uh, there is a theatre performance, The Audition, a new multi-authored work that interrogates the protocols and power relationships of the audition process to an uncover what it means to seek asylum. Uh, and that's at La Mama Courthouse uh, on th- at 349 Drummond Street in Carlton. On Thursday, November the 14th, um, it, there's a forum, Penn International Day of the Imprisoned Writer, and that's at 6.15 at the Wheeler Centre, 176 Little Lonsdale Street in the city. On Friday, November the 15th, which also happens to be my birthday, uh, there's a celebration, Palestine National Day at 5.30 in Federation Square in the city. On Saturday, November the 16th, there's a rally, Global Day of Action Against uh, Trade Union Repression at 12 noon, uh, eight-hour day monument, that's at the eight-hour day monument, which is on the corner of Russell and Victoria Streets in the city. Uh, Tuesday, November the 19th, there's a forum, Climate, War and Refugees. Rising sea levels and rapid changes in the climate is leading to a situation where potentially more than 150 million people will be forced to leave their homes by 2050. In the Asia-Pacific region alone, millions of people are being internally displaced by floods and typhoons along along with the effects of war. Meanwhile, the military hardware and wars initiated by the United States pump out a big share of global carbon emissions. And that's at 6.30pm, dinner from 6pm at the Resistance Centre, Level 5, 407 Swanston Street in the city, which is opposite the RMIT. Uh, And I will also be presenting, I will be one of the speakers um, at that forum. On Wednesday, November the 20th, there is a forum, The Future of Victoria Markets, 6pm at the Drill Hall in the Multicultural Hub, 26 Therry Street in the city, opposite the QVM. Uh, Then we have also on... Uh, also on Wednesday, November the 20th, is a film screening, The Life and Times of Frida Kahlo, and that's at 7.30 at the Hoyts Melbourne Cinema, Level 3, corner of Latrobe and Swanston Streets in the city. Thursday, November the 21st, there's a film screening, um, is that right? Yes, Thursday, November the 21st, film screening, Official Secrets at the Cinema Nova at 380 Ligon Street in Carlton. Saturday, November the 23rd to Saturday, November the 30th um, at the Resistance Bookshop. Uh, It's their end-of-year radical book sale. Um, The annual sale uh, has seized 25% off all stock. That's all stock, the lot. Uh, If you want to donate books, you can call this number, 96398622. Saturday and Sunday, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m., Monday to Friday, 11 a.m. to 6.30 p.m. And that's, again, at the Resistance Centre, Level 5, 407 Swanston Street in the city. So if you're looking for books on all different types of politics, the environment, socialism, etc., this is the place to go. Wednesday, November the 27th to Sunday, December the 8th, uh, there is a theatre event, I Shot Mussolini, uh, which is at La Mama, 349 Drummond Street in Carlton. On Wednesday, November the 27th, there's a rally for the future of Melbourne's transport at 10am, Parliament Street, Steps, Spring Street in the city, uh, and also on Wednesday, film screening, John and Yoko, Above Us Only Sky. The untold story of John Lennon's album, Imagine, recounts a story of hope for a world still desperately in need of peace, justice, empathy and love, and that's at 7.30 at the Hoyts Melbourne Central. 
on Thursday, November the 28th to Sunday, December the 1st, uh, Tilled Trans and Gender Diverse Film Festival, and that's at the Footscray Community Arts Centre, which is 45 Moreland Street in Footscray. On Thursday, November the 28th, there's a Rally for Nature, 12 noon at Parliament Steps in the Spring Street in the city. Uh, also on Thursday, 165th Eureka Rebellion Anniversary Dinner and Drinks and Speeches, and that's at the Maritime Union of Australia, which is 46 Island Street in West Melbourne. Friday, November the 29th, uh, Fridays for Future, there's a climate strike 12pm at the State Library. Uh, and Saturday, December the 7th, Rally for Permanent Visas and Family Reunion, 2pm, State Library, 328 Tonston Street in the city. Uh, again on Saturday, Music, Rise Up, West Papua Benefit Gig from 2 till 10pm at Underground Car Park, 44 Harmsworth Street in Collingwood. And last but not least, there's comedy. There's a comedy event, The Chasers' War on 2019, 6.30pm at the Athenaeum Theatre, 188 Collins Street in the city. Everyone loves The Chaser. Okay. Oh, I think there's another page. There. No, is there? Wait. No. Wait. Not that I have. Oh, yes, yes, we did the Fridays for Future rally, didn't we? In the we did, yeah, yep. Fridays okay, for Future, all we good. did all of those. Absolutely. Great, so that, that's uh, just a bit of a summary um, of what's coming up. Um, I guess maybe it might be just time before we move, I have sort of two big, so, uh, two sort of news thing um, articles I kind of want to discuss um, for to fill up the rest of the show, but maybe we'll go and play, actually we'll play Zane's um, song, When Our Turn Comes. I love that song. <laughs> when the, Our Turn Comes, Climate Strike. Trash, and for a brief moment they could make up under the cash. 
I saw the future that I'd like to contemplate I'd rather be part of a mass movement to break the state Emergency action decarbonize across the globe Nationalize the energy sector, yeah, lock a load Make all of the wind and the solar publicly owned Get it done, try to keep prices under control The police and the battens and the media barons Get the barriers, we got to bulldoze to make it happen Seriously gonna wait until there's no North Pole Before we step on the brakes We're leaving it way too late And that's a fact Gonna get out of the street and take the power back Ah, we seriously gonna wait until there's no North Pole Before we step on the brakes We're leaving it way too late And that's a fact Gonna get out of the street and take the power back You're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio. Um, it is 8.12am and now we're getting um, close to the um, last part of our program. And I guess uh, one of the, it's a bit of a, well yesterday was a bit of a special day. Um, it's the anniversary of um, the October Revolution um, from no, 1917, um, which were, you know, an inspiration to all those kind of struggling um, the world. Um, that it was the day that the the Bolsheviks um, and the Soviets seized power and instituted the first um, socialist state. Um, I guess reading out from, I wanted to read do a bit of a reading from an article, old Green Left Weekly article from 2017 that we kind of printed um, to celebrate the 100th anniversary. And I think the re- revolution has, I think, been, was inspiration to, you know, struggles against colonisation, uh, against oppression. It was, a, it really kick-started um, the socialist movement in pretty much all the kind of major countries. Um, you know, in some sense, it was undone eventually by by the kind of Stalinist regime, that kind of bureaucracy that kind of took over later. later. But I think the the inspirational kind of impact of the revolution um, still can't be overstated. And I guess reading from Paul Blank, um, who writes here in Green Left Weekly, back in 2017, two revolutions occurred in Russia in 1917. The first in February um, overthrew the Russian uh, um, monarchy, the second revolution in October created the world's work, first worker, worker state. And these revolutions involved a series of uprisings by workers and peasants throughout the country and by soldiers who were predominantly of peasant origin in the Russian army. And the exciting, I guess, aspect of um, 
these uprisings were, especially especially when you look at what's happening around the world in terms of the rise of kind of Lebanon and Chile, many of these uprisings were led by democratic elected councils called Soviets. The Soviets originated as as strike um, committees and were basically a form of local self-government. And the second revolution, as I kind of stated before, led to the rise of the modern communist movement and to the transformation of the Russian Empire into the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, the USSR. The goal of those who carried it out was creating social inequality and economic economic democracy in Russia, socialism. However, the system eventually turned into a bureaucratic um, dictatorship, which lasted until 1991. So, yes, I think it's... um, kind of exciting kind of day to kind of mark um, the anniversary. And I guess talking a bit about the background of um, the October Revolution in terms of a brief sort of summary of sort of how it kind of all started. I guess it started off um, by the fact that Russia was, during the beginning of the 20th century, was an empire with an undemocratic system headed by an absolute monarch, the Tsar, who ruled with an iron fist. Um, maintaining this power was a vast bureaucracy, an army and a repressive present political force. Um, the desirous system in, in involved the repression of civil liberties, um, intellectual freedom and human rights. It persecuted various, um, various religious minorities. And there was lot, the kind of, the, the extent of the brutal kind of repression can't be kind of overstated. And I guess the royal family was at the top of a small but powerful layer of wealthy nobles who owned most of the land. The nobility aimed aimed itself in luxury at the expense of the great majority who are mostly impoverished peasants. Peasants made up like 80% of the population in 1917. And I guess the interesting kind of thing with Russia was, you know, Russia wasn't necessarily a kind of modern kind of capitalist state as as like what the UK and Germany were at the time. And I guess the other social classes include um, capitalists, workers and professionals, which became increasingly part of this kind of bigger picture around the October Revolution. And I guess um, to keep up economically and military with other major world powers, the Tsarist regime encouraged the development of millet industry in the later 19th century. And of course, one class... Um, you know, to emerge from the industrial development was the capitalist class. They were essential to Russian economic development but had little political power. But then the other kind of aspect of this, the development of industry developed, um, led into the development of the wage um, learning working class. Um, who made up la- la- more than 10% of the population in 1917. However, these um, workers lived in large cities, many were literate, and they were receptive to a growing variety of new um, social and cultural influence. Moreover, their labour was essential in producing um, goods and services. And I guess for these reasons, um, the working class was the major force for um, for the social change. In growing numbers, workers sought to organise trade unions to win better conditions to the Tsarist regime, and the capitalists often repressed their efforts for reforms and of course these um this repression combined with poor and working in living conditions led many workers to become highly political and support revolutionary um, groups so i think that's that's sort of i guess a broader broader kind of um summary i guess a bit of the background and i guess the summary i guess of the significance of the october revolution which i think continues to be an inspiration to, you know, especially when we look at the uprisings that are happening in Chile, all around the world, Iraq, yeah. all around the world. And I guess one of the things is, 
I think the legacy is still relevant because we still exist under capitalism. And in fact, capitalism is, I think, has gone, has gotten even worse than what it was like back in 1917. In fact, mm. inequality is even greater. Um, the richest 1% own than more than 50% of, of the wealth. Um, and then you also have the other issue that wasn't really a factor back in 1917 necessarily is the issue of the climate. Um, the contradiction between, um, you know, maintaining some form of environmental sustainability and capitalist development is becoming, um, becoming increasingly stark and hence why we're seeing the rise of kind of like, you know, the school strikes, the rise of client, um, climate, other client activist groups such as um, Extinction Rebellion, who have all kind of warning around the, the apocalyptic kind of nature of climate change and why there needs to be, why we need to kind of stand up and kind of fight back. So I think that's a, mm. for that kind of reason, this, the kind of ideas of democratic um, organisation, you know, um, challenging the power of the capitalist class or increasingly become relevant in times. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Now, um, might play a quick announcement. I think Megan has to get going, so you just have Early, me for the, work. Have the last 10 minutes. Um, I might just go to be a bit of time. I might just play a quick, um, another song. I think I will play. And have a great weekend, everyone. Old Man River slash Joe Hill by Paul Robinson. Well, we had a meeting on the site and, uh, Robeson was introduced to the workers and he spoke about his relationship with the workers in other countries uh, because he was a, a prominent figure in the international working class movement. Joe says I 
him standing by my bed. They frame you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I ain't dead. Says Joe, but I ain't dead. And standing there as big as life, and smiling with his eyes, says Joe, what they can never kill, went on to organize. Went on to organize. From San Diego up to Maine in every mine and mill, where working men defend their rights, it's there you'll find Joe Hill. It's there you'll find Joe Hill. Right, you're listening to Green Left Weekly um, Radio. Um, it is 8:23 a.m. and it's just me in the studio at the moment because Megan had to leave early. Um, and I guess wanted to want to talk, um, finish up the program by talking about um, the exciting British election um, that's going to be coming happening on December the 12th. And um, reading this article um, in the latest Green Left Weekly from Susan Price, um, that real change is coming following the European Union's agreement to grant Boris Johnson's government until next January to exit the European Union. Um, The House of Commons has voted to hold a snap election on December the 12th. And at the time of um, writing, the election bill has... Well, actually, at the, this is when the article was written, but that, that is essentially passed. There is going to be election happening. Um, and I guess Labor voted to support the early election proposal after initially having abstained on the vote because of internal disagreement. During the, during the debate, um, Labor attempted to amend the bill to allow 16, 17 year olds and European Union national, um, European, U- European nationals residing in Britain to vote, but this was rejected. But then Labor can now take its plan to tackle climate change by transitioning to clean, to clean energy to election. Um, Rebecca Long-Bailey, the Labor MP who drove this policy, wrote in Tribune magazine on October the 30th, the question facing us now is how to deliver a green industrial revolution that is equivalent to the scale of the challenge. To have any um, chance of success, it will need to push aside the tradition of incremental policy making. We need a rapid and far-reaching transformation of the UK's economy from our homes to our transport and energy systems. Delivering a green industrial revolution will require taking on powerful corporations and individuals who have amassed obscene wealth by wrecking the climate and who will um, stake everything on delaying action and watering down environmental protections until it is too late. We also need to talk about jobs. Um, The Green Industrial Revolution will need a clear and properly funded plan for workers affected by decarbonisation, one that puts workers themselves and their trade unions at the heart of delivering the, the transition. British Labor leader Jeremy Corbyn launched Labor's election campaign on October the 31st in South London. We stand for the many, Corbyn said. Boris Johnson's born-to-rule conservatives protect the privileged few. They've slashed taxes for the richest and vital services and support for everyone else. But real change is coming. We'll end the conservatives' great rip-off by putting rail, mail and water back into public ownership. So they work for everyone, not just Tory um, donors. 
and shareholders and tax havens. We will invest in every nation and region, rebuild our public health services and give our NHS, National Health Services, schools and place the money they need by taxing those at the top to properly fund the services for everyone. This election is a once-in-a-generation chance to transform our country, take on vested interests holding people back and ensure that no community is left behind. And because you know what really scares the elites, they're afraid, what they're afraid of is paying their taxes, so this election they'll fight harder. And in fact, in light of that, I remember there was a funny article I read in the conservative press about how billionaires and millionaires are kind of getting scared at the possibility of a Corbyn-led government. And I think, I guess the, the, the kind of, um, the election is going to be, I think, a challenging one, I think mainly because the political debate has been dominated by the question of the European Union, which I think has put the Labour Party in a kind of poor position. Um, but I think the fact that the Conservative press has got pulling all stops to prevent a Corbyn victory, I think, shows that there needs to, there definitely needs to be a kind of the, there definitely needs to be kind of a rallying of the left behind, um, the Corbyn campaign. Um, whatever its kind of limitations, I think there's clearly pushing, um, um, the politics of Britain in a kind of leftward kind of direction. And I think it'll be kind of exciting to kind of see what happens next, um, and how this kind of election campaign going. So yeah, we'll be continuing, we'll give, continue to have coverage, um, as it happens. Anyway, um, it's getting close, it's getting ready to the end of the program. Um, stay tuned for Beyond Zero Emissions and um, definitely tune in to us next Friday at 7am on Green Left Weekly Radio. Have a great day. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio. Brought to you by the Green Left Weekly newspaper, which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it is only $10 for the first six issues. Repeats of the show... And interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the 3CR website. Thank you for listening. You are tuned into 3CR Community Radio, 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. start sometime. What better place than here? What better time than now? I'm not someone who just exists in that